Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, Florida Fishing Products, Turtle Box Audio, All Hands Vodka, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, I sit down with fourth-generation Key West guide, Jared Sear, and discuss his upbringing and experiences as a guide in one of the world's most notorious and competitive fisheries. Jared found his love for fishing as a child and has grown into a well-respected captain whose name often comes up in conversations I have with South Florida guides. In this podcast, Jared dives into how he has worked to evolve with his fishery, what it means to do things the right way, and gives a lot of great tips on targeting fish in the flats. We hope that you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. All right, well, hey, Jared, thanks for hanging out with me today. Got a weather day here in the Keys. Normally say beautiful Florida Keys. <laughs> yeah, not so much today. <laughs> thanks for having me, though. Yeah, man. Um, thanks for just kind of letting me sit down, get a, get a chance to come into your home and, and talk to you about your life and philosophy of fishing. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, man. I got a chance to interview your brother, which was great, just to hear yeah. a little bit about your family. But I'm, I'm interested about you. Like, for you, how did you fall in love with this water and then how did you make the decision to be a guide as well well you know pretty lucky um growing up down here we grew up on a canal uh and i guess it just kind of in our blood we you know i've when we were kids our whole neighborhood all of us were into kayaking and diving and you know the older we got um you know i think i got my first boat when i was like eight years old wow you know and it was like a <laughs> boater's world you know, plastic bathtub with a little two and a half horse on the back, but dude, it was freedom, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we were allowed in the bay. And then, um, one of my close friends, Chris Strauss, that lived a couple canals over and, you know, we didn't ride bikes back and forth. We took boats. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, him and I messing around. And then as we get a little older, we were allowed in, you know, the, the larger bay. And then by the time we were in high school, you know, it was kind of free reign. We were sail fishing in the afternoons after school, tarpon fishing at night, like, we got to do some really cool stuff. What was the first thing that you were targeting or, or targeting is probably an intense word yeah. for an eight year old, but what was the first <laughs> thing that you were really doing recreationally in your boat at eight years oh, old? Oh man. You know what we used to do a lot of was, uh, what a, if the tarpon showed up in the canal, which happened on occasion, it was pretty, you know, we, we would definitely try to do that, but it was, dude, it was anything we could catch, yeah. you know, whether it was snappers, we used to troll like tiny little Yazuri crystal minnows for baby barracudas. Like, 
that was that was the deal. It was anything you could get a hold of. <laughs> yeah. Did you have like a little trolling motor? What'd you have? No, I guess it was like a little two and a half horse. I think Tahatsu. I don't I don't even know what it was. Yeah. It was so long ago. Um, but yeah, you know, we had our little fishing rods and little thirty five hundred, twenty five hundreds. You know, put rod holders in the boats. And Chris had a. It looked like an inflatable, but it was also a plastic. You know indestructible <laughs> but it was it was a good time we you know if we ventured a long ways it was you know to go out into the basins and catch sea trout and jacks and ladyfish and you know like i said and then as we get a little older i think i caught my first like full-size tarpon on fly like 12 years old wow and dude i was hooked yeah and so that's when for you a big shift happened yeah. for for kind of it went from like being a childhood kind of fun thing to okay now I really want to get into this yeah without a doubt you know um and I started you know my dad had a deep sea boat when we were kids and you know very busy I think he fished like 300 days a year and his mate would want days off and I used to ride along in the summer times and you know just learning and trying to pick up as much as I could mm-hmm. but I think I was like 12 or 13 he let me start mating on the boat like with on the weekends mm-hmm. if his mate wanted a day off He's like, as long as I could lift the outriggers up, because we had to go into one of the bridges in Key West, and uh, he's like, dude, I had a job. I remember it was like, God, it was like one of my, you know, third or fourth trips, and it was kind of, I think, a layup shot. My dad had it all, you know, so it was pretty easy for me, but, you know, we had mounted some fish. I made like $400 as a kid, and dude, I thought I was like, this is awesome. Like, you know, it was the best thing in so the world. So what do you spend $400 on? When God, fishing rods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that age, it was either dive gear, spear guns, or fishing rods. So for you, was there, from 12 years old and on, were you like, I want to be a guide and I want to chase tarpon bonefish permit? Or was dude, it? I didn't know. Um, you know, part of me wanted to, you know, be a commercial spear fisherman. Part of me, I, you know, and I still to this day, I love offshore fishing too. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, the sight fishing side of things and offshore fly fishing. And then, yeah, I guess as I, you know, the inshore thing I really, really started to get into more as I got older. I think I was like 16 when I got a flats boat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, Chris had a flats boat as well. His dad had a, a Hells Bay Marquesa at the time. Mm-hmm. And, dude, it was just, I, we'd go o- anchor up on the ocean side and cast yeah. a tarpon or fishing in the basins. Like, I think tarpon is really what drove me to want to be a fly guide so so at 16 getting the chance to have so much exposure to technical fishing at a young age in what ways do you feel like that shaped you because many most of the guys that i've interviewed you know when they were 16 years old they didn't have access to a skiff and and fly fishing for tarpon i mean how did that play in and shape you um you know i just i guess just being able to the experience of just being able to see everything, you know, over the course of the years. And, and I've seen the fishery change a lot. Um, they don't do this, you know, if you would have asked me then, I was like, they do this and they only do this. And then, you know, the older I've gotten, you know, I've realized that they, they evolve and do different things too. Like mm-hmm. places that we fished when I was 16 and 17, they don't necessarily go to or don't hold in like the, the way that they did. And places that we didn't see them in before, now they go to and, you know, just interesting to see those variables yeah what do you what do you think kind of is the driving force behind that is that just boat pressure is I, it I think, food source i think a little of both um i mean who knows to be exact but as you know sitting back and you know i try to just watch things and you know just be observant on it and 
I think, you know, I think boat pressure has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, you know, I wonder about food source. You know, I'd see basins that would have, you know, giant schools of mullet in them during, you know, and maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but like looking back on it now, it's like, oh shit, maybe that's why they were all in here, you Mm -hmm. know, or, you know, you don't see crabs as much as you did or, you know, schools of pilchards or, you know, now you'll see a group of pilchards will move into a basin and then the fish are, they follow them, you know. Yeah, and I was curious your take on since you've been you've been fishing here since you were a kid. You know, you have things that it's kind of like, for lack of a better phrase, you have something come along. This is the new fly. This is the yeah. new lure. This is the new plug. And I'm curious why you think that that might be. If one, if that's overhyped, or if the reason that that's effective is because of a familiarity with a certain tactic yeah. or fly, or well, do you think it's food source? I think it's throwing something different. Um, you got to think about it. Is these fish, we you know we estimate they live to be eighty years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been this whole sport's evolved basically in one fish's lifetime. You know, we're fishing, you know, same fish they might have been fishing thirty, forty years ago. You got to think they get smarter. You know, they've been around since the dinosaurs. Yeah, they didn't. They haven't stuck around that long because they're stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's and I guess that's like the thing that I wonder is, you know, how how much familiarity is a fish holding in its brain yeah. on a fly of just like, oh, come on. The Merkin, <laughs> seriously, dude, you know, exactly. <laughs> I think I was born yesterday, yeah. <laughs> but it, and then versus like just the, the reality of like, um, if the, the pressure is just making them harder to catch. So the flies are having to get more refined or if the food source is changing. So the flies have to change or yeah. a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of it is, you know, throwing different things, just something that they haven't seen or, mm-hmm. You know, especially for me, like when we get out on the ocean and everybody lines up, like, like every 300 yards that fish is getting thrown at, you yeah. know, and that's what, you know, clear lines became a huge difference. And, you know, a lot of us started throwing those, um, and you know, flies have gone, I've seen flies go from big to small and then sometimes back to big. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch. Um, I, they're not dumb. <laughs> I'll yeah. put it that way. You know, so our fishery was, is definitely, I think, a little more unique and difficult than others. You know, it's a lot of clear water, a lot of pressure, and honestly, it's probably some of the best fly guides in the world. You how, know? how do you try to stay on your game as far as a kind of a, a fishery that has a lot of puzzle pieces from, from the fact that you have a lot of species you can target to yeah. you have a lot of weather variable, you have a lot of different types of water you can fish, and yeah. you have the the biggest maybe puzzle piece of you have what feels like hundreds of people doing the same thing, man, you know, there's a bunch of different things. I think the more, you know, I don't think there's anything you can, I guess you could do that to one giant advantage. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff where you can do little advantages, you know, if it's, you know, you throw this clear line here or, you know, you've got a, a boat that, you know, is ultra stealthy, you know, it's, or easier to push into the wind, you know, all these little variables, I think all add up to, in the big picture, give you an advantage, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a bunch of little things I think that kind of add up and spending a lot of time out there, you know, um, the more time I'm out there, the, the more dialed in you get on them. Cause the fish are moving around too. Mm-hmm. I know, I noticed like, you know, like after this tropical storm goes by, it's going to be like a new, you know, it takes me a day or two to get dialed back in. Everything mm-hmm. moves around, you know. So when you're out there every day, you're seeing the shifts and watching it. And and then, like, you take two or three days off, and then it's like starting over again, you know. you got to get back into your groove and, you know, dial them back in. What, what do you feel like for you as you think about 16-year-old Jared running around in his skiff? 
like obviously you've learned a ton of stuff, but what do you feel like the biggest difference is from right now to when you first started is for you? Oh man, I mean, experience (laughs) and just spending time out there, you know, and learning how to run around and how to, you know, work flats and, and, you know, it's getting out there, setting up on a spot and, you know, I might only spend an hour on it now, but then I would try to spend all, I would spend all day in an area, you Mm -hmm. know, just because this place is huge. You know, I worked at the fly shop, um, when I was a kid or not a kid, but I guess coming out of high school, um, and my first couple of years of guiding and, you know, in the evenings there wasn't Google earth or any of that stuff, but we had these standard mapping made these satellite charts and, you know, I'd sit there in the fly shop from four to eight at night and just literally between customers just studying these things. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, man, maybe next time we should go out and try this spot. Oh, this sand hole looks good. I wonder, you know, what does that hold? Mm-hmm. So it just, you know, it's spending time and, and learning what parts of the tide they like to move through there. And, you know, every year is different too, though. I've, you know, I've seen where, you know, they flow on an incoming tide. Next year they might, you know, for whatever reason, I've seen them, you know, switch into it on a different tide. You know, whether it's, it's food sources in there then or, you know, warmer water coming off the flat or, you know, cooler water coming in from offshore. So, so talk me through, you were talking about how you're always having to relearn and you have a, a big system like this come in and, and now all of a sudden you gotta, you're getting back on the water and you're trying to put together the puzzle pieces. What does that process look, look like for you? I mean, what, what types of advice would you give for somebody who gets out on the water and thinks, man, now I got to kind of dial back in? You know, kind of, I guess I try to really getting back on the, you know, coming out of the marina basically and saying, okay, what, what's my condition? What are my tides doing? What's my wind doing? What's my temperature? And then, you know, kind of try and say, all right, I'm going to start in this area. And, you know, I'll move in there and fish a few flats in that area, kind of gather, you know, if it's whether they're there or not. And then, you know, a lot of our stuff here, is, it's tide dependent and water temperatures and wind. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, our three biggest factors. And, of course, you know, sunlight plays a, <laughs> a huge role. <laughs> Are, are you holding all of that information in your head or do you have a way that you try to, you know, for the, for the most part? Yeah, I guess I try to hold it all in my head. Sometimes I wish that, you know, a lot of the old timers, when I was a kid, I'd hear stories of guys having, you know, journals and log books of all this stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, hearing some of the consistencies that they would see. And uh, I've tried to be pretty good about trying to just log it all in my head, you know, and I, mm-hmm. and the, the longer I've done it, I felt the more consistent I feel about it. Yeah. yeah. And the first couple of years, like shit, what did they do last year during this time period? But, um, you know, I, I uh, <laughs> I try to hold it in there, but. So for you, like is a typical morning when you're talking about checking wind and tides and everything, is that like wake up in the morning and have a cup of coffee? Do you have a a system for checking yeah, different I apps mean, and websites. What does that look like? Definitely. Um, you know, I, we used, uh, you know, we use WindFinder a lot, but as you probably know, it's not really, it's going outside and seeing what it looks like. Yeah. Um, there is a, one pretty useful one that we use the national data buoy center. Um, and that the lighthouse here and I, there's, you know, they got different buoys all over the country, but it's like, and that like within, I think they update it every 10 minutes wow. and it gives you wind speed and direction. That's one I, I've got. I even use that during the middle of the day. And then, you know, just like general tide stations, saltwater tides, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Is that something you check, like to check in the morning or are you the night before? Do you do a lot of, or um, are you just randomly doing it on your phone? Uh, dude, I'm doing it all day long. Yeah. You know, 
whatever I've, you know, or I get an idea in my head. It's like, shit, I wonder, you know, I wonder how this spot is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I either doing it on my phone or, you know, my, I run Simrad, uh, electronics and they've got all the tide stations in there. So, you know, it's, it could be if, if I haven't fished in a few day, days, yes, I'm pre programmed, you know, pre trying to, you know, figure out what my game plan is going to be. But when I'm fishing every day, it's, you know, like I said, it's constantly through the course of the day because our, you know, Key West could be three hours different than the backcountry, And, you know, you definitely don't want to make a, you know, 45 minute run somewhere and <laughs> the tide not doing what you thought it was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, I think that's, um, you know, one of the really cool things about fishing down here compared to like where I am up in the panhandle is yeah, just the amount of diversity within 45 minutes of, oh, yeah. of running is just, I mean, from tide diversity to, you know, I mean, all the, all the stuff you guys have going on here for you, when you wake up in the summer, do you pretty much have a, a triage of, I want to go for tarpon. And if it's not right for tarpon, then I'm going to go for this. Then I'm yep. going to go for bonefish. Is that kind of how you think about it? Or is it um, the client's again, pick or what? No, usually I've got a game plan. Um, I, tarpon's probably my favorite thing. Um, so if it's calm, that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, now where I'm doing it at, that all depends on tides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then if, you know, if the water's not right for them or if it's blowing, you know, 15 or 20 in the summer, you know, the, the smaller class of fish we're fishing, the babies, um, they're not usually happy with it. I mean, you might find some in a channel or hidden in a mangrove island somewhere, but, you know, then we kind of switch into that permit bonefish game. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of that is, is tide dependent. If I got a, you know, higher water, I'm going to typically look for permit. And if I got, you know, bottom of the low, I'm, I'm looking, you know, for tailing or waking bonefish. What drew you to, to tarpon? Because your dad's off ran yeah. an offshore boat and then you like spear, you thought about yeah. commercial spear fishing. And then was it just that experience at 12? Is there something? Yeah, man, I, I can, I can tell you that my exact time. Um, I can't remember how old we were. We were, <laughs> we were in, uh, Chris's dad's hell's bay it was brand new. Um, we were going to fish in a certain channel that was around the corner from the house. And, you know, Chris and I were young kind of, those boats don't have fuel gauges. They, you know, it was always ran off the dipsticks, which is the fuel gauge that doesn't break. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, being young kids, I, honestly, we might've been like 14 or something. I don't, I got, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, but <laughs> I remember the, the situation we'd ran out of gas and his dad, I think was out of town. His bro- my parents were busy and Chris's brother, Robert was, was in the, the area. So, he was going to bring us gas. Well, when we, so we throw the anchor kind of sitting, you know, it's like right before sunset and all of a sudden they start rolling all around the boat. Like we stumbled into them, mm-hmm. you know, not really knowing what we were doing. Not, it wasn't even the fish spot we were going to fish. And, uh, the, I remember, I think it was probably like an 80 pounder comes up and sucks that fly down. Like, you know, you're throwing a little two inch fly that you see this big bucket mouth st- suck it down. And then you come tight and it's like, Oh my God, what did I just do? You know, it's like mm-hmm. you come tight on and it's like, uh oh. <laughs> and, you know, fish comes out of the water and off to the races, you know. And I dead boated that fish. And, you know, it probably took me a half hour, 45 minutes as a kid. And <laughs> after I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is it. So for you, as you get out of high school, you said you worked at a fly shop. What, what were the things that you did to, um, you, you kind of had the advantage of growing up here. You had, had a, da- a dad who was in the business and, you know, people are always talking about the right way, doing it the right yeah. way. Like oh, for you, how just, did you try to do it the right way? I mean, way? I spent every waking moment on the water. I mean, if we weren't, if, you know, if the weather was bad, we weren't, but 
shit, even sometimes when it was bad, we were going and doing mm-hmm. dumb stuff that we probably shouldn't have. But, I mean, just the experience, learning it, you know, learning how the etiquette down here is a huge thing. Um, you know, we see we see people that come in and just buy a skiff and say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm a guide here now, you know, and it's just from the older guide community, that's just not the way to do it, you know. You piss a lot of people off, um, and you don't get the respect of the older guides. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, again a lot of it's going out and learning and just seeing how it, uh, you know, how it all works. Watch how people work spots so you're not cutting somebody off. Like you know, that's the biggest thing is you get into an area that you know if you're not familiar with it and there's somebody in there, dude, just stop and watch. See how he's you know if he's moving from left to right, don't go in front of him. <laughs> you know, get yeah. behind him. And there's yeah. a lot of places where, like, stopping and watching, trying to see how somebody's doing something, they're like, if you see me there, you can never go there. Yeah. And obviously, in a place like the Keys, it's like, how are you not going to see someone somewhere yeah. at some point, you know, type thing? But yeah. how do you try to navigate that tension? It's tough. You know, and, and like, what I'm, I'm seeing more and more now is, like, spots that are, like, a two-boat spot or a three-boat spot. I had a, a, a basin I was in this year that it, uh, I was the first one there, and the fish were there. And I had six boats get in behind me, mm-hmm. like lined up behind me. Somebody comes in with a trolling motor and like, and that's another big no, no down here is especially if you're a young guy, dude, you don't have a trolling motor. You got to mm-hmm. man up and pull. Um, I understand the older veteran guys that are, you know, in their sixties, like you put your time in your shoulders are blown out. Like, yeah, but you know, it's it in my you know recommendation. And that's, that's the time for you to go learn, go somewhere else. Don't, don't get in there with the other, you know, if it's a two boat spot, then sorry, wake up earlier or, you know, go somewhere else. Find, find something new because mm-hmm. there's other stuff, you know. For you, as you think about like, okay, you're 12 years old, you catch your first tarp on the fly, you're 14 or, or some odd, you know, you, you run out of gas, you have this experience. Now you're like, okay, this is really what I want to do. And then you start to try to really like learn these fish without giving away too much black magic. What are some of like just the big kind of catalytic you, you talked about, I guess it's a, it's not one big thing. It's a bunch of little things, but what are some of those really big things that you felt like helped your success level go up in, in finding and feeding fish? Um, well, that, you know, learning the fish's behaviors helped a lot too. Um, you know, and that's one of the big things in permit fishing is dude, throw them, a, throw them a live crab, watch what they do to a live crab. And, you know, then you kind of take those, seeing how that fish reacts and take that and then, you know, convert it into the fly. Mm-hmm. How can I make this fly do what that crab just did? You know, and I think that that's, you know, I, I think what's one of like, I see the difference between a, an okay angler and a, and a good angler is knowing how to feed fish. Because mm-hmm. I'll get guys, you know, even with tarpon fishing, you get guys that just wing the fly in there and they just, you know, they'll do what, you know, they'll strip it, but don't, they're not reading the command. Like, I can tell you what to do, but until you see the fish, see the fish's reaction and learn how to actually respond to the way he's responding, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a, that's a huge, what, what are know, some of the things changer. you're looking for? Like, so if, if a fish is high and happy and moving at a certain speed, like if you had to try to put that into words, obviously that's experience, but if you had to yeah. put it into words, what would those things be? Then? I mean, a lot of like, you know, matching the speed that they're moving at. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a big fan of throwing at lead fish. Um, you know, there's and, and every situation is different too. Like you might get into a group and say, okay, you, you could put it up, up current of them and swing it into them. But 
you know, you go to another spot and that doesn't work and, you know, you're going to want to throw into the back half of the group somewhere where they're not so spooky. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you got tailing bones and stuff too. You got to be fish light stuff, go delicate. Cause you know, they're in six inches of water and you put something heavy and then they're going to all blow out. Mm-hmm. You, know, it's, you know, it's all situational. When, when, if, if tarpon isn't working out and you're going to plan B species wise, what's that for you? Um, you know, so during tarpon season, it's, it's usually permit or bones. Um, you know, if it's a little earlier in the season, you know, the permit fishing can be really good. We start to get more into the spring, like our prime time dates, they go out and spawn. Mm-hmm. So it's more, you know, then we have to do a lot more bone fishing, which, which is usually fine because there's everybody's tarpon fishing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, so you can kind of get your pick and, you know, your choices of your, uh, spots. And honestly, some of my bigger bone fish come from the spring or the fall. When, when you're on a group of fish and you're, you're trying to figure out, like you talked about, sometimes you just got to see what they want or what they're doing. Do you have like a, a progression you go through? Or are you just always like tying different flies on doing different, how much, how much I mean, changing you, a, a you lot doing? of the, you know, the first change comes, you know, ahead, ahead of time I get to the flat, I see what, you know, what's our water doing, how shallow it is, what's our wind blowing and kind of pick, you know, make a choice there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, in different flats, I like to fish different flies too. Um, and then go from there and I'm always trying to get you the best shot I possibly, you know, give you the most layup shot you can have, you know, whether it's pulling around, I'm trying to get in front of them, you know, not casting across their backs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, again, if we get a, a spot that's a higher traffic spot, those fish are smarter. So we might have to try something a little different Dude, just sometimes the slightest color difference changes it, you know, um, I've seen it, you know, times like Brandon and I fun fishing together. One of us throws a fly that, you know, it's not doing it and it's the same fly, just in a slightly different color pattern and boom, there it is. Like, mm-hmm. like oh, that was easy. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a lot of just, you know, experimenting and like I said, always trying to innovate and change things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, people showing up with the wrong clothing and obviously that's, they're going to get sunburned or they're, yep. they're going to be super hot or whatever. What are some other mistakes that you see clients hop on the boat making? Um, God, I've seen all kinds of mistakes. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the funniest ones that comes to my mind, I had some dude show up with suitcases one time, huh. like showed up to the boat ramp. This is when I used to trailer <laughs> and like, can we bring these? We checked out of our room. We're bringing these with us. I was like, no, you're not. Yeah. Well, uh, you just uh, leave them in the car or something. Yeah. Well, I take a taxi, you know. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. A lot of people don't like to rent cars down here. Cause you know, if they stay downtown, it's, you know, no yeah. park, but, um, you know, I would tell people to, you know, try and wear non-marking shoes. Um, I personally, I don't like to wear shoes, but I've got guys that, you know, that will wear just socks because that way you can still feel the fly line. You put a pair of shoes on, your balance decreases and you can't feel your fly line. I can't tell you how many shots in my lifetime that I've seen missed because that dude's standing on his line, mm-hmm. you know, and doing the hot foot when it comes to, you know, in the moment and <laughs> like, well, there goes this. Wait for the next one. <laughs> What, what, if, if, if somebody was saying, if, if somebody booked a trip with you and they're, they're, they're nine months out and let's just say they're, they're an intermediate level angler mm-hmm. and they go, Hey man, what are some things I can do to practice? Cause everyone would say, Hey, practice, like practice casting. Yeah. But like, are, are there any certain things that you feel like you can advice you can give to them that really help them? Yeah. So I think probably one of the biggest advice, you know, piece of advice if I can get or give to people is, um, you know, is Florida Keys have a lot of wind. I mean, as you can see right now, blowing 30 outside. Um, 
that's the biggest thing I think I see people struggle with. Mm -hmm. If you could be a better caster in the wind, that's a huge game changer. So, you know, try and get, you know, a sidearm cast, really get good at double hauling and being able to, you know, keep it low and try and punch through wind. Mm -hmm. I know it's not always easy to be able to practice that stuff, you know, especially if you're in the wintertime and Michigan, you know, you're having to cast in a, you know, a gym if you've been able to do that. But wind is our, our biggest our biggest you know thing down here i think to to compete with mm-hmm. you know and you know because we don't a lot of our flats are you know pretty wide open it's not like the everglades where i'm it could blow 30 and we can go get up in a creek and you know hide from it it's mm-hmm. we're in the open elements so you know when it's blowing 20 or 25 and we're out there pulling and you know sometimes you got shots into the wind and you you know, afternoon stuff, you know, are, mm. are we have a predominantly east or southeast wind. So if it's typically after one or two o'clock, time to turn the boat around and start going back into it. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be, that's the biggest piece of advice I can give. I know at one point in your life, you were traveling and, and guiding in Louisiana and yep. you talked about when you had, you know, once the kid came into the equation, yeah. kind of changed that. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> So I spent a few years out there. Um, I worked with some good friends that uh, own a, little, a lodge, and they they helped me out more than I can ever uh, I can ever explain. Eric and Mo Newman that have Journey South Outfitters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was kind of single at the time, and it was an experience that I will never forget. I honestly I miss it. Um, but yeah, I met my wife, and <laughs> on my last season there, and uh, yeah, basically after that, I got you know we got married bought a house and she said no more yep. <laughs> which is understandable you yeah know, it was it was pretty tough you know for us to to separate uh you know i was i was going for a few months and you know cell phone service ain't great isn't great down there and yeah you know it's just hard to be away it was like we had bad weather i was flying home or she was flying out or you know we went i went back and forth a lot and it's like, man, what, you know, and my career got busy enough here where it's like, dude, I don't need to go anywhere anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm busy enough to fish here in the Keys all year round and, you know, just changed it. It was a cool place, though. What do you feel like that place or that season of life taught you that you kind of brought back here into what you do here? Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, like I said, I spent, I think it was four years I went there. Um, it's, it's a totally different fishery, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, I felt like I was able to bring a lot of what I, ha- I do here, there. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, it, those fish, there's nothing else like them. Dude, mm-hmm. they're big, they're aggressive. They eat stuff on the surface. You can spook them with the boat. I called it like, it was like going and playing whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I spent my entire life guiding here to spooky, finicky fish to go out there and you just, you know, you could have an unbelievable time. And like I said, they're all big and hungry and it's it's a cool place. What do you feel like you brought there from what you learned and were shaped by here? Um, you know, being able to, you know, fish a skiff as well as I did, you know, I did, I didn't run a trolling motor. A lot of those guys run trolling motors there. Um, you know, and it was a little bit different fishery, but I, you know, some of the stuff, um, just picking up like the way some of the flats were shaped, you know, Mm -hmm. some fishing bars and, you know, stuff like that. I kind of, you know, I just, I felt like I had almost like a little natural instinct of Mm -hmm. where to start looking and, and granted, some of the stuff was different, you know, looking for bait. Um, you know, cause here it's not, there are times where we're, you know, I'm looking for big bait balls and stuff, but a lot mm-hmm. of times, like if you look find birds and bait there, like it's usually going to be redfish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, another cool part of there that you don't hear talked about a ton is the, the big jacks and black drum. Mm-hmm. Dude, there's one of the first times I saw uh, a big jack there. I thought it was a tarpon. <laughs> it was swimming straight out. I was like, whoa, like, what is that thing? And, they, and I think I was fishing with Mo. And she's like, oh, it's a jack. And I was like, hey, dude, it, <laughs> I, you know, they just say get, you know, 30, 40 pounds there. They're moths. Yeah. They get big sickle fins on them. You know, I've seen mm-hmm. like calm days where they swim their little sickle fins out of the water. Like, mm-hmm. it's really neat. Big, aggressive fish. You want to talk about a fish that'll break a fly rod. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they definitely, uh, they'll put some damage on them. Another question I had that was kind of on my mind is obviously your brother's a guide, your dad was a guide. What, what is it like being in a family of guide? Is there a lot of competitiveness? Do you feel like it's a huge advantage? What? So, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, it's, it's a little bit of both, a little bit of everything. You know, I, I, I really enjoy, you know, my dad still guides a little bit. Um, but we've all at the Marina, we've got all three of our boats next to each other. So mm-hmm. it's like every day, you know, we all show up. It's like, I get to talk to some, you know, they're like my best friends, my family, like, mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes there's strategy. There's definitely, you know, some competition between my brother and I still. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we always want to try and beat each other, but we also want to help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's, you know, like, there's times where it's like divide and conquer. Okay, you go look here. I'm going to go look here. Like, you know, after the storm passes, that's, you know, we both get back. Neither one of us fish for two days, three days, whatever it is going to end up being. And, you know, say, okay, I'm going to go start in this area. You're going to go start in this area. And, then, you know, that way you just have more intel, mm-hmm. you know. We're working together. Um, you get to see different things and say, shit, dude, you need to get here now. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing anything? Come here now. Yeah. Or, you know, vice versa. Um, you know, just it's nice to, like I said, I get to talk to them on a daily basis. You know, I don't, I don't know how many people get to work with their family, but we've got our times where, you know, we argue and, get mad at each other but for the most part it's it's i think it's a huge advantage to you know Mm -hmm. having us be close and do all do the same thing do you have any advice for people who either work in a family or (laughs) in a close group of people or friends that are family like working through conflict or anything like that any (laughs) any wisdom there oh man i don't know um you know the only word advice i guess is uh (laughs) be nice to each other i don't know <laughs> oh we get on some drag out you know you just always got to be able to you know put it all behind you and um you know just just make up mm-hmm. you know it's it's you only get one family mm-hmm. you know we only live one life it's only got so long enjoy it mm. you know you'll regret it later in life if you don't if you were to describe like the perfect day on the water for you what what does that look like mm perfect day on the water um yeah god i i I, again i I still kind of fall back to tarpon fishing is my favorite i Mm -hmm. I would say if i had some of the like in past experiences some of the coolest stuff i've ever done tarpon fish all morning long and then go out when the sails tail in uh in the spring go out and sight cast a sailfish in the afternoons wow those have been some of my more fun days. Yeah, t- tell me a little bit about that because I've, I've never had that experience. No, dude, it's cool. Familiar. I mean, and it's all about getting it in the right, you know, getting it when it's right. You know, it's like playing a lot of The more days you put in, mm-hmm. the more chances are you're going to catch it. And, and being able to, you know, to do it when it, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when those sails come in, you know, our color change or, you know, the, the Gulf Stream pushes in and we get this color change, like, just on the outside of the edge of the reef. I mean, I've caught sails in, like, Sight cast them in 30 feet of water before. Hmm. Um, shit, honestly, shallower than that. 
and you know out to like 180 usually and it goes from like a dark blue to like this electric like powder blue and they travel on that edge and do when they get in that that electric like powdery blue because they're black they do they stick out like a sore thumb you see them you know two three hundred yards out wow you, you know position the boat and you, we you know get out there and we pitch flies to them uh, that was a big thing in high school we were real real big into is trying to catch them on fly but you know most people you can pitch live baits you can fish kites but again i i'm i like sight fishing and then also while that's going on too is there, there's a lot of big blackfin tunas coming through as well and you know in the last few years that uh, there's been bluefin showing up i mean it's it's always happened but people are starting to dial it in now mm. where you're seeing these four to eight hundred pound bluefin tunas you know they're migrating up into the gulf to go spawn and it looks like you got a volkswagen bus behind the car i got to during covid <laughs> um it was the first shot i'd ever had at one you know drifted a bait back didn't it for the most part, they're migrating and, you know, they're not into eating, but you want to talk about making your knees shake, <laughs> Yeah. you know, getting, you know, like running the boat up, getting in front of them, drifting a bait back. It's, it's pretty, pretty wild. And there's a few guys that have gotten it dialed in now and are catching a couple, you know, and usually season's closed, you know, you can't keep them, but it's at least cool to do and see. Oh yeah. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I think that's a, that's kind of something I think that's, that's interesting here you know, it's just the, the amount of variety that you have, but also the amount of variety of guides you have. Like yeah. you have, you have people do, trying to dial in everything. And obviously as information is more readily accessible and, um, you know, it's easier to, to, from GPSs to yeah. Google earth, to just being oh, able the to technology is you can YouTube any type of thing you can almost imagine yeah. if you don't know any. So you've seen it change a lot. I'm curious, like, you know, there's, there's plenty of conversations out there about all the negative change. And I think people are pretty well familiar with, you know, that, but I'm curious to you, like, what are maybe some of the positive change or some of the innovation that you feel like is happening with your generation that Um, excites you? You know, I definitely think we treat the fish a lot better than we used to. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, BTT is doing a good job at pushing like the keep them wet, you know, a lot of times like bonefish, like if we catch a bonefish on the boat, when I was a kid, we'd bring them in the boat and like people drop them. And, you know, their statistic, it was, it's pretty high. And I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, I think it was like, like 60 or 70% like mortality rate on bonefish that get brought into the boat. Um, so like now if we catch them, you get in the water, mm-hmm. you know, get in the water, you hold him, you know, get everything ready and say, okay, we're ready for a split second, lift him up enough to get your photo and then let, you know, put him back down. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, it's really helped improve that mortality rate. Um, tarpon, you know, that was another thing we used to bring all them in the boat and, you know, that's all been proven that that's bad for them. Um, so, you know, my guys that I fish a lot that, you know, I fish for, I got some clients that I fish for 10, 15 years and, you know, usually we're fishing light line. Um, you know, and, or barbless hooks even you know i got one guy that fishes all barbless hooks because you know after they stop jumping it's either we miss this window of the next hour and a half while they're pouring through or you fight that fish for an hour and a half which is you know you're going to kill it mm-hmm. you know tarpon fight to the death um so you know get your few few fun jumps out of it and then you know either pop them off or you know we do it you know i call it stop them or pop them you know bring the heat to him and he's going to come to the boat in five minutes or you know he wears through the leader and fish swims off healthy yeah. you know and they throw those flies really well they're really good at throwing you know hooks oh yeah yeah definitely um uh, you know you had talked about you know some of the like positive stuff going on with um btt but also you guys have uh some stuff going on here with safer cleaner ships 
Um, I was just wondering if you could just give a little bit of a general overview about what's happening down here in the Keys and, and why the guide community is concerned about that. So, um, you know, the cruise ships have, has kind of been on a, a hot topic with our guide association and, uh, you know, Safer Cleaner Ships is the organization that's, you know, really pushing and helping us go after it. Um, you know, I think it was 2020 we had voted to, uh, it wasn't to totally get rid of cruise ships, but it was to minimize them to smaller, cleaner ships, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's happening right now is these ships that come into the harbor are these mega ships, 1,000 foot long. And, uh, you know, they basically from the reef in, they're, you know, churning up the bottom, like, pretty bad, where all the silt lands on the coral, kills the coral. I mean, they've changed the way the harbor, the, the, you know, our tarpon like to get into the harbor. They've changed the way those fish live in there. Um, and, you know, in the 90s, they had talked us out that the harbor used to be full of coral and sponges and, you know, sea fan gardens, and they talked us into dredging it. And I think we paid for it all. And now the harbor is just a, basically it's like a big mud bowl. Hmm. Um, the fish don't get in there the same way that they used to. They still get in there, but in different ways. Um, but it's not that same happy, you know, safe place for them. And then, you know, you get these cruise ships coming in daily that come in and blow them out. And, you know, they run right through where they go. You know, they, the channel's 35 feet deep and the, the ships draw about 30. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're barely squeaking in there. Um, and like I said, I think in 2020 we had voted to, you know, minimize these boats into a smaller class to do less damage to the environment. And uh, the, there's one of the particular docks that is is leased. We can't get out of the lease. They basically went in the middle of the night in the back of a bill and, you know, snuck it in on the back of a bill and had our whole, you know, it was, we voted in, it was like 76% or something like that. And uh, they had the, the vote reversed, canceled the whole thing. Hmm. So now they can start bringing in these mega ships. Well, the city, you know, such an uproar about it. Everybody was so upset. The city would try to go and, you know, get out of the lease. And whoever cor- corrupt politicians made this lease back in the 90s, I think it's 15 years long. And the only way we can get out of it is if both parties want out. Hmm. Like, who who thought that was a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> like, and why is the cruise ship going to want no, out? Yeah. No, and it's not even it's the guy that owns the dock. Hmm. You know, it's called Pier B. And it's a city-owned dock, but he's got the rights to it. And so, you know, the city of Key West and then the military port, um, the Outer Mole, they both, you know, decided because we were bringing three in at a time. Um, so now it's only his operating and like, you know, he's even like our rules that we've asked for, he doesn't, he doesn't care. You know, he kind of does whatever he wants and there's no repercussions on him. Yeah. I was curious with so many guides, obviously there's a lot of social dynamic at play within the guide community, but then also the guide community to the, to the rest of the keys. That's more tourism focused, yeah. but not in tour. You, I guess the guides are in a way tourism focused too, but more tourism focused and come drink and play and yeah. jet ski and all that stuff. Could you just explain just a little bit for for people like some of the challenging parts of the dynamics that are at play with all that? You know, we want everybody to you know succeed down here. Tourism's our basis, um, but like you know, especially with these these ships, the people that they affect, we don't make any money off of those boats, you know, and they're destroying the environment, you know, killing the coral. They're allowed to dump. They get a, I can't remember what the I think it's ten miles out. They're allowed to dump their waste. Um, it's like, how do we allow this stuff? And we're in 2022. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I don't think that, you know, I think they go downtown, they buy a couple T-shirts and, you know, postcards and magnets, and that's about it. 
then they get back on the boat and drink and eat. But, mm. you know, you'll see through the course of the year, you know, like in the wintertime is when we have a lot of the, um, you know, our snowbirds come down. Some of them fish, but, you know, that's when the, the island itself makes a lot of money, whether it's the hotels, the restaurants, mm-hmm. um, you know, Airbnb, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we start to get into, like, the spring, and you'll see, like, if you go downtown right now, it's like a fraction of the people that are here in January. But it's, you know, we got a fishing crowd. Everybody's, you know, following the tarpon migration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of another interesting piece is if so, these ships mess up the migration where's the tourism you know how big is the, the fly fishing industry in the in the florida keys like that's a big chunk of money that might not be there anymore yeah. you know and i don't think they've thought about that yeah and i was you know it's interesting because i live not too far from um harry spear now and you know he was down here pretty pretty early and you know, you hear a lot of these older guys and they're just, you know, the, the whole fly fishing for tarpon thing obviously wasn't a big, big driver. But now mm-hmm. when you're driving through the keys, I mean, it's like, you're looking all over the place, you know, skiff, 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 you know, <laughs> and you know what they're doing, you know, they're technical fly fishing or, or let's just say 80% of them are. So it's, it seems to be maybe one of the biggest drivers throughout i mean how if somebody said hey how big is how big let's put it this way let's not even like limit it to fly fishing but if you said how big is tarpon bonefish permit for the keys how would you try to describe and chip away at that answer god i I don't even know people have done the statistics on it. i don't know what it is off the top of my head um but it's 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 a big especially like right now it's a big big player you know if you had to guess how many guides oh God, I don't know. Like, just in the lower keys, I bet you there's 100, 150. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole keys, 500. I don't know. Wow. It's, there's a lot. And then, but you come down here in the, you know, in the fall or, you know, dead of summer, there's like 30 of us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good time to come. You yeah. Um, I got, if, if you're good, I got a couple rapid fire questions I'd, I'd like to hit you with just to. Yeah, man. So, one of the things I'm always curious about is, for you, like, what are your, what are your essential pieces of gear? Like if you really had to go full minimalistic, like what are the things are, the, you know, obviously you're going to have a rod and reel, yeah. but what are some things that for you are really important to you and make a difference for your experience? Or- I mean, really good sunglasses. You know, I'm, I'm particular, I, I'm a big fan of Costas. Um, good sunglasses, good clothing is also another idea. I see people come down here and either not cover up and get, turn into a lobster or you know they're wearing stuff that's too heavy and you know sweat and almost overheat um you know good rod and reel makes a big difference you know the technology and and rods has come so far you know there's a couple of companies making some really nice you know one and two piece rods you know loomis is a, makes some fantastic stuff and then uh you know reel technology's come a long way mm-hmm. you know i'm fishing some more you know i've I switched uh, a couple of years ago i fish nautilus reels now and mm-hmm. They're for especially for tarpon fishing. They've got a reel called the GTX that mm-hmm. is uh, I've put through the paces the last couple of years. And and you know I used to fish a couple of he- companies that had heavier stuff and and they were great reels. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know if you're casting this stuff all day, it, there's some fa- you know some fatigue that is involved. So you know it, it also gets back to those little advantages here and there. You know if I can get a lighter rod and reel that casts better and you can do it for longer, you get a better chance. Yeah. And definitely on a drag system, I mean, yep. when, you know, you don't think about the drag system until 
it's working. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, especially you know, not like working. guys coming from the fly or the freshwater fly world. You know, they yeah. that's a glorified line holder basically. You know, and then yeah. I come down here and it's like, oh wow, yeah, this drag makes a difference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something definitely. Takes a, you know, hundred plus yard run out. Or, how, how much gear are you bringing with you? Are you are you bringing you know eight rods and some of them are intermediate, some of them floating? Yeah, so I, I definitely have a variation. Um, you know, it's usually six to eight rods. You know, and and sometimes you know if I've got spin guys, you know, I, I get you know in the off season I get you know guys that'll do it'll be like a combo. One dude's fly, one dude's spin. You know, so but I like to have stuff. You know. I have one rod with a clear line, one rod with a sink tip, one rod with a regular fly line. It just, it all depends on situations. And then like, I'll do like, let's say during bone fishing permit season, I'll, I'll bring like two nines, two tens. Mm -hmm. And I got like a, a nine with a long leader on it. And then I got a nine with a short leader, you know, depending on wind conditions. Um, or, you know, like one with a light fly, one with a little bit heavier fly. So I'm not every flat I get to, I don't have to sit there, switch the fly out. It's like, okay, this is, this is what the water's doing here. I got current. I don't have current. It's windy. It's not windy. Boom, grab this rod. Here you go. And it's mm -hmm. ready to go. You know, it's, it just makes it more efficient, you know, instead of say, okay, I brought one nine, one ten, one eleven. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, you love the clear line for you. Like when would be a situation where you would just want a, a regular fly line. I mean, I, for permanent bones, I fish more regular stuff, but tarp and I'm, I'm almost all, I carry, you know, I have, I have one eleven set up with like a, with a regular fly line, um, for, there's some dudes that don't like it cause it is a little more coily, mm -hmm. but I, I think the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but like I said, I'll, I'll keep one just in case I got a guy that's against it, but then you're yeah. going to, you know, you're fishing a 16, 18 foot leader because I got to get the fly line away from those fish. Yeah. You know, they see it. Uh, my last question to you is if, if you could go back to yourself when you're let's, let's call it 14 and yep. you're floating around in a boat that doesn't have any gas in it, <laughs> you're having the time of your life and you're going to give yourself just a piece of advice about what's in front of you. What advice would you give yourself? Oh man, just if I had to give myself a young, my young self, a piece of advice, I, there's a lot, <laughs> but, um, you know, I just keep at it. Just, you know, I wish I, uh, you know, looking back at it now, I, I know I fished a lot as it was. I just wish I could have spent even more time on it. Cause you know, things have changed and mm -hmm. you know, the fishing's the pressure. I wish I could have done more during that time period. I wish I could have, you know, done more and grown up in the seventies or eighties down here. That would have been pretty cool. <laughs> But no, the the '90s and early 2000s was a pretty incredible place. So mm. I just wish I could have spent more time out there. Mm. You know, less homework, more fishing. <laughs> but gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, normally I say thank you and goodbye to the guests, but we got so caught up in what we were doing that I forgot to. So. If you're listening to this, Jared, thank you for joining me on the show. We hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. Please help us out by subscribing and sharing this with your friends. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.